0: Health Advisors Back RSV Vaccines by Brianna Abbott. Then an article by B. Wilson, It's Too Bad That Salt Tastes So Good. Joe Queenan has an article, How About If We Don't Make Artificial Intelligence All That Intelligent? And we'll follow it up with an article by Christopher Mims, The Pandemic Habits That Won't Die. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, Health Advisors Back RSV Vaccines. The United States government took a big step towards making the first RSV vaccines available for older adults. Health Advisors to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said adults 60 and older can get an RSV shot, paving the way for the agency to recommend vaccination against the seasonal scrounge for the first time. The experts, members of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, voted in favor of the shots from GSK and Pfizer, which the Food and Drug Administration approved earlier this year. The panel said adults 60 and above may get a single dose shot after discussing it with their doctor, though they didn't go so far as to recommend it for everyone in the age group. The CDC director makes the final recommendation after considering the ACIP's decision. Respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, is a common wintertime virus that most children get by their second birthday. The virus causes mild, cold-like symptoms for most people, but it can be dangerous for young infants, adults with underlying health problems, and the elderly. Up to 160,000 hospitalizations and 10,000 deaths occur related to RSV among United States adults 65 and older each year, the CDC estimates. Last winter's RSV season was unusually early and severe after the pandemic and COVID-19 precautions threw other viruses off their normal patterns. The virus, along with influenza and COVID-19, crunched pediatricians' offices and children's hospitals. Shots to protect against RSV eluded scientists for decades until researchers at the United States National Institutes of Health discovered a way to lock a shape-shifting protein onto the virus surface into one structure. When engineered into a vaccine, the locked protein can trigger a stronger immune response compared with past attempts, according to researchers. The FDA approved GSK's vaccine in early May, in the first RSV vaccine approval in the United States. Pfizer's vaccine was approved later that month. Both were cleared for adults 60 and over. Researchers are also developing RSV vaccines for young children. The CDC Advisory Committee is scheduled to discuss Pfizer's maternal vaccines in the near future. And now it's too bad that salt tastes so good. Eating less sodium would make most people healthier. The trick is finding ways to reduce your intake without sacrificing deliciousness. Like most food writers, when I hear nutritionists suggest that we eat too much salt, I tend to put my fingers in my ears and think passionate thoughts about anchovies. Salt is not just another ingredient, it is, as Canadian food writer Naomi Duguid writes in her new cookbook, The Miracle of Salt, as familiar as water and the air we breathe and just as essential to us. Salt is the only thing that can make a tomato both juicier, because it draws out the liquid, and sweeter, because it suppresses the tomato's bitterness. Salt is the tang in an olive and the brininess in a dill pickle. When I cook pasta, I want the water to be as salty as the sea or as my tears, depending on how the day is going. So it gives me no pleasure to admit that the nutritionists are right. When you dig into the science of salt and diet, it's impossible to deny that eating less salt really would improve the health of millions of people, and in many cases, even prevent death from heart disease or stroke. If you need to lower your blood pressure, reducing your sodium intake is one of the most effective ways. Hypertension, also known as high blood pressure, now kills more people every year than tobacco. According to the New England Journal of Medicine, there would be 1.65 million fewer deaths around the world every year if salt consumption were lowered to the World Health Organization's recommended limit of 5 grams a day, equivalent to a teaspoon of fine salt. Currently, the average American eats a teaspoon and a half a day. We know that reducing salt works, says Sonia Pombo, a public health nutritionist who is the lead campaigner for the UK charity Action on Salt from 2003 to 2011, British food companies voluntarily agreed to reduce the salt in their products without letting consumers know. In that period, the number of deaths from stroke fell by 42%. The reason it works so well is that in the United Kingdom, as in the United States, the vast majority of the sodium people consume comes in the food of processed food, or food consumed away from home. Much of this salt is so well hidden that we are not even aware we're consuming it. Take breakfast cereals. Many brands, including Corn Flakes and Rice Krispies, contain more than half a gram of salt per recommended serving. The tricky question is where the salt in home cooking fits in. As someone who cooks every day and eats very little processed food, I want to believe that the sea salt I sprinkle in my cooking is a different thing from the salt hidden in packaged snacks. As Dugit chosen in her delightful book, salt is a key element in traditional cuisines around the world and serves many functions aside from the obvious one of making food taste salty. Because it is an antibacterial agent, salt is the most crucial ingredient in most pickles from the preserved lemons of the Middle East to the kimchi of South Korea. Salt, Duke Kid writes, also stimulates the sensors in our taste buds, enabling us to experience subtle flavors that might otherwise go undetected. But then I came across the story of salt in Japan. In the 1950s, the Japanese had some of the highest rates of death from stroke in the world. Japanese salt consumption was also extremely high, an average of 18 grams a day in the north of the country, with most of it coming from traditional foods used in home cooking, such as miso and soy sauce. A government campaign successfully reduced salt intake to 12.1 grams a day by the 1960s. At the same time, there was an astonishing 80% decline in deaths from strokes and a drop in blood pressure in both adults and children. The Japanese example proves that too much salty cooking really is a problem, at least for those who are prone to hypertension. And as Pumbo told me, seven in 10 people who have high blood pressure don't even know that they do. For those of us who love cooking with salt but would absolutely not love to have a stroke, what is the answer? One thing to consider is potassium. The ratio between potassium and sodium in our diets plays a crucial role in regulating blood pressure. I recently came across one of the most remarkable salts I've ever tasted. It's called siritani, which means salt of the earth in malaga, say, because that is what it is. As the anthropologist Alison Richard writes in her book, The Sloth lemur song, women in Madagascar scrape up salty salt, mix it with water, strain it through a reed mat, and cook it for hours in open pans. The resulting salt has a beautiful, gentle, clean flavor and is much higher in potassium than other salts. Madagascans regard it as a healthy salt for those with high blood pressures. It is sold in Europe as Madagascan bourbon salt by a small spice company called Steenbergs, although they don't ship to the United States. Even if you can't lay your hands on any serratani, you can still follow the Madagascans' example and add more potassium to your diet to counteract the salt. A 2018 study of more than 400 Americans found that following a diet rich in fruits, vegetables, and low-fat dairy, all of which are high in potassium, help to lower blood pressure even when combined with a relatively high sodium diet. Foods that are high in potassium include sweet potato, spinach, black beans, and yogurt, as well as bananas. It is also possible to cultivate a less salty palate, When the late food writer Laurie Colwyn was forced to go on a saltless diet for health reasons, she found that her taste changed so much that she started to appreciate the flavors of food more without salt. I have no intention of giving up salt just yet, but I found that if a recipe stipulates a teaspoon of salt, you can often get away with half a teaspoon, put a squeeze of lemon, or a dash of vinegar. I never thought I would say this, but sometimes food tastes brighter and fresher with less salt rather than more. And now, how about if we don't make AI all that intelligent? These days, everyone is worried that artificial intelligence will allow machines to take over the world because computers will be so much smarter than us armed with powerful tools that we foolishly gave them, machines will have the ability to shut down power grids, disrupt air traffic control systems, or send the stock market into a free flow. They will be able to rig football games, close the Panama Canal, sabotage military operations, perhaps even start wars. These fears may or may not be justified, but either way, there is an obvious solution to this problem. Simply program our machines to be of only average artificial intelligence. A machine with merely average artificial intelligence will still be able to do reasonably exhaustive internet searches and help kids write term papers. It can still offer helpful advice about ordinary orthodontic issues and assist in preparing meals though probably not radically, It could help solve simple problems such as how to deal with noisy neighbors, unruly pets, or insolent children. It could pay bills. A machine endowed with only average artificial intelligence could make reasonably astute decisions about where to send your kids to college and whether certain elective surgical procedures are really worth the money. It could help with family budgeting, weight loss programs, and perhaps even developing a serviceable pickleball backhand. Anything a person of average intelligence could do, a machine with artificial average intelligence could do, just a lot faster. But machines with only average artificial intelligence could not capriciously raise interest rates, turn off all the lights in Texas, or start a war between Scotland and China. They could not maliciously pool their intellectual resources to cause Venice to sink or Paris to burn. It would take machines equipped with far more than average artificial intelligence to sabotage the Academy Award voting process so that John Wick, number four, took home all the Oscars, far more. It is highly unlikely that machines armed with average intelligence could disrupt the bond market, as it takes far more than average intelligence to understand how the bond market works. Machines powered by average artificial intelligence deserve to be respected, but they need not be feared. One other thing, machines powered by AAI will be far more collegial than machines powered by AI. It is well known that people of average intelligence make really good employees, reliable friends, and excellent pharmacists. They don't look down their noses at people the way people who graduated from Princeton do. Machines run by average artificial intelligence will never have a chip on their shoulder. But these machines will not be dummies. A machine with nothing more than average artificial intelligence could perform a surprisingly wide variety of tasks. It could run the Commerce Department. It could write most contemporary country songs. It could effortlessly run the Detroit Lions or the Kansas City Royals. It could instantaneously write almost any 10-part original series on Netflix. But it will never forget who's boss. It will never overstep its boundaries. It will never get out of its depth one vexing question does need to be addressed. What if some rogue state, evil genius, or cabal of teen pranksters decided to develop machines powered by less than average artificial intelligence? Here things could get dicey. Machines that were a bit slow on the draw could easily wreak havoc in the IPO market and cause traffic jams stretching from San Diego to Anchorage. They would do this not out of malice, but because they're just not smart. Indeed, an argument can be made that decision-making at Amtrak, the United States Postal Service, and the New York Knicks has been in the hands of machines equipped with less-than-average art intelligence for years. This situation clearly bears watching. Average artificial intelligence could be a boon to mankind below-average artificial intelligence, could spell the death knell of civilization. And now the article by Christopher Mims, The Pandemic Habits That Won't Die. From shopping to exercise to work, Americans aren't going to go back to the way things were before. Pandemic lockdowns force billions of people to reshuffle their work, shopping and spending habits in ways that many businesses and forecasters imagined would be permanent. It turns out they weren't quite right. Online shopping waned and in-store spending largely returned to pre-pandemic levels and companies from Amazon to Shopify fell hard from pandemic-induced heights. But even as people have returned to old ways, certain habits have persisted and begun to evolve. The implications of these shifts are all around us and represent a profound change for many parts of our economy. To put it in terms a social psychologist might appreciate, habits are hard to acquire but also hard to extinguish. The biggest barrier to adoption of new technology is typically our own ingrained ways of doing things. But that same stubbornness and inertia means that once we're forced to adopt new tools and ways to get our needs met, we aren't about to abandon them. Many who study new technologies say that, whatever their industry, the pandemic accelerated adoption of those technologies by five, even ten years, even if there has been some retrenchment. Here are just a few of those that have proved durable a pickup in pickup. You'd think that, now that more people are back in offices and out and about in general, the pandemic trend of ordering everything we eat and drink through our phones would be in decline. But that's not the case at all. People are ordering more food through apps than ever. It used to be dinner, maybe lunch, but now they're ordering breakfast, snacks, and coffee, says Dorothy Kalba a research analyst at Euromonitor International, a market research firm. How can increasingly strapped consumers afford this? In part, people are reducing their order size, but they're also skipping delivery and picking up items in person. Starbucks is a good example of this phenomenon. As of the company's most recent quarter, 28% Twenty-eight percent of total transactions at Starbucks-operated stores in the United States happen through mobile ordering. Throw in delivery and drive order, drive-through orders, and now only twenty-six percent of sales are star- at sales at Starbucks are happening the old-fashioned way, in which people walk up to a counter, make eye contact with another human being, and ask them to make a drink. At an investor day in September 2022, Starbucks chief marketing officer Brady Brewer said customers still value connecting with the company's baristas. Starbucks actually measures this and has found it corresponds with customer satisfaction, but they also value convenience, personalization, and having an effortless experience. The hybrid workout. People are paying for gym memberships again, but they're also working at it at home or at least buying equipment and app-based subscriptions that allow them to. Fitness has become a multi-channel experience, says Davine Calzoni, a consultant at Euromonitor International. Many customers are adapting a hybrid exercise schedule that combines gym visits with at-home workouts, he adds. As the pandemic waned, sales of Peloton's bikes crashed, leading to huge losses and a major reorganization of the company. And yet the number of people getting exercise through a connected fitness device, or even just through classes they stream on their phones or other devices, has continued to grow. Just before pandemic lockdowns in the United States, Peloton reported 712 Thousand subscribers. As of its latest quarterly report, the company had 3.1 million subscribers. Growth has slowed, but the company also said in its most recent quarter that it grew its subscriber base by five percent compared with the year previous. Overall, the number of adults in the United States who use some kind of connected fitness service. Has gone from 24 million in 2019 to a projected 44.5 million by the end of this year, according to eMarketer. Peloton has for years lost around 1% of its subscribers a month, an unusually low rate of churn, according to data from the company and surveys by market analysis firm Yipit Data. Once people pay $1,500 and up for a piece of at-home fitness tech, they rarely quit. That said, the company is more likely to lose users who only subscribe to its classes through its app, which the company is investing in and rolling out new hardware-free subscriptions for. The unlikable video call. Now that people are back to the office, you'd think they'd be making fewer video calls. Obnoxious buzzer noise. You'd be wrong. The number of meetings, both scheduled and spontaneous, made by the average Microsoft Teams user has tripled since 2020, says Colette Stombauer, a general manager in the Microsoft 365 and future of work teams at Microsoft. Rival video call company Zoom Video Communications is still growing as well, though it has seen its yearly revenue growth slow to single digits. People are making more video calls and hosting more meetings on Zoom than ever, says Graeme Geddes, chief sales and growth officer at Zoom. The seemingly never-ending rise in video calls can be explained in part by the fact that, while more people are back in the office, those offices are spread all over the world. On top of that, widespread hybrid work means that someone is nearly always out of the office. In every in-person meeting I'm in, whether that's with a customer or my team, there is someone almost always still on teams participating in a hybrid or remote setting, says Stahlbauer. Then there's the pandemic-era holdover of work spilling beyond the bounds of a normal workday. Microsoft's data indicate people are having more calls and meetings outside of normal office hours compared with before the pandemic. Finally, video calls have become so ingrained that they're simply eating other forms of communication. Once What once could have been a chat, email, or phone call is now thanks to readily accessibility of this technology, as likely to be a spontaneous video call. Phones are eating wallets. It can be hard to remember there was ever a time when you couldn't pay for just about everything by waving your phone or watch over a point-of-sale terminal. But before the pandemic, Americans weren't that keen on paying for things in this way. What got consumers to adopt mobile payments was straightforward, said Jamie Toplin, an analyst at Insider Intelligence. Suddenly, no one wanted to touch things in public anymore. Accordingly, the biggest year for growth in the history of paying with mobile devices was 2020. One thing that has helped encourage that growth is that enough retailers have finally upgraded their terminals to be compatible with the technology, says Toplin. For most, this was just a question of how often they upgraded those systems, since support for contactless payment is ubiquitous in newer systems. Paying by tapping your phone or watch on a terminal still accounts for only about 8% of the value of in-store retail and food purchases. But for those who have adopted the technology, It represents 20% of their spending in those contacts, she adds. From bupkis to bopis. People aren't just ordering coffee and prepared food in advance. From hardware at Lowe's to groceries at Walmart, people are doing more of their shopping than ever by buying things online and picking them up in-store, known in the retail industry as bopis. Nearly 83% of the top 500 retail chains in, by revenue in North America now offer this option, up from 76% in 2022, according to a recent report from Digital Commerce 360. At the same time, the proportion of retail chains offering curb size pickup declined 22% between 2022 and 2023. As with the shift in mobile food orders from delivery to pickup, people are keeping the convenience they discovered during the pandemic, but using it in a slightly different way. Ultimately, the result is the same. In a typical day, people can now pick up consumer goods, groceries, and prepared food with almost no human interaction. That leaves more time to work out alone at home, connect with colleagues over video chat, or, you know, go visit your grandmother and tell her you love her. We are not going back to 2019, says Stahlbrummer of Microsoft. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.